0: This morning we will be looking at the middle section of Luke chapter 4, specifically verses 14 through 30. Last week we saw the temptation of our Lord by Satan himself, and before that we saw the baptism of our Lord as he begins now to go about his ministry In earnest, if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word, the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse. 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about Him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up. And, as was His custom... To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Zidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Thus far the reading of God's Holy Word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that You would feed us from Your Word, that You would help us to see who You are, what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. This we ask in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you like to see Jesus here today worshiping with us? Would you like to see Jesus here today preaching to you? Before you get all excited, no, the Lord Jesus is not coming here bodily today. You'll have to put up with me. But I think before we are too quick to answer a question like that, we must search our hearts and wonder if we are not at least somewhat like or tempted to be like the synagogue here at Nazareth. You see, in the synagogue at Nazareth, there would have been good church people. They would have dressed just right. They would have had good moral convictions. They would have railed against the secular world that was attacking God and morality. They would have wanted new laws to be passed. And yes, they would have argued vigorously for secession. They did not want to be a part of the Roman Empire. They were good, church-going folk. But Jesus comes into their midst, and Luke puts this story, this incident, at the very front of Jesus' ministry. From the other Gospels, we actually know that the incident that comes a little later in chapter 4, in Capernaum, comes before this. Luke even intimates that in the midst of our text. Why would Luke take things out of order? We know he's a man who is very orderly, very detailed. He is a well-thoughtful historian. Well, he does it for a purpose. Because you see, if Jesus were to have a life passage, this would be it. It marks the tenor of his ministry. An uncompromised proclamation of the truth. That challenges the people. And that even causes rejection of the Son of God. This is a bold and audacious text. And this morning, I would like us to see three things from it. First, there is an audacious claim that Jesus makes. He doesn't pull any punches at all, doesn't skirt around the edges. And then secondly, there is an audacious response from his congregation. And this is because thirdly, there is an audacious good news that is available for them and for you and me. An audacious claim, an audacious response, an audacious good news. Let's begin then by picking up the story as if we were sitting in that synagogue in Nazareth. And Jesus comes in. Local boy makes good, the Nazareth post might say. Come to Sabbath services and hear the boy wonder Jesus. Hear about all the things that he has done and said, Jesus is coming now back to Galilee, a little small section of Palestine, the hinterlands, you will recall. It's not a famous place. It doesn't even have historical weight to it, because after all, Galilee was located in the bad section of Israel. You remember when Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom? And some of the kings of the southern kingdom were good? But many were bad. But every king of the northern kingdom was bad. Guess where Galilee is? In the former northern kingdom. Galilee is a place that is not famous. It's not Jerusalem. It doesn't have an august history. But Jesus is brought back here intentionally. His ministry has begun. We have seen His baptism. We have seen Him tempted by... the. Satan himself, and now in the same purposeful way that the Spirit led him into the wilderness, the Spirit leads him, do you see, into Galilee. He came to Nazareth in the Spirit, Luke tells us. There is great purpose in Jesus' life, and I think sometimes as we listen to the stories about what Jesus did, we have in our minds an impression of Jesus just going from place to place to place, and because He's important, important things happen. But there is a sense here in which we must emulate the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just that famous things happened to Jesus because He was there. Jesus purposefully did everything that He did. And as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the call upon your life. You are called to purposefully make and eat breakfast to the glory of God. Purposefully go to work and prepare reports and type emails for the glory of God. Purposefully study for tests and exams to the glory of God. Even purposefully tuck children into bed and pick up for the millionth time toys after them. There is purpose in the life of the follower of Jesus because there is purpose in Jesus' life. And he comes into Galilee and what we miss a bit here, because Luke summarizes it, is that there is what has been called the Galilean spring. That word spring just brings thoughts of encouragement and wonder to our minds, doesn't it? We think of flowers blooming. We think of The weather warming. The sun shining down. And that was what was happening in Galilee. He had gone into Galilee and reports had started to go out throughout all of Galilee about Him. And this Greek word for report carries with it the connotation fame. Jesus was becoming famous in Galilee. People were noticing Him. He had done miracles in the town of Capernaum. And He was well-respected for His Bible teaching. We see that there in verse 15. He taught in their synagogues and was glorified by all. It is likely that His fame actually came more from His teaching and preaching than even from His miracles in the town of Capernaum. People knew who He was. People were excited to see Him. But after all, to the people in Nazareth, wasn't Jesus just a bit of a Regular guy. This is where he grew up, Luke tells us in verse 16. This is where he learned to walk. Learned to drive animals. Learned the trade. Learned to be polite. Learned to help others. And others observed him. Now... The Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ not once sinned in thought, word, or deed. This tells us how often we look down on our young people. Here is someone who was the perfect teenager. I know many parents are wishing for that right now. There was nothing to complain about about Jesus. He was never rebellious never talked out of turn, never shirked his duty, never was a failure to be compassionate or loving. And yet, even though everyone would have observed this and would have had no incident to say, well, you remember the time when Jesus did? Because he had never done anything wrong. And yet still when he comes, they say, yeah, this is a young guy. We know him. We've known him since he was this big. They look down on the youth. This is the way often it is in our own lives, isn't it? We go back home and people don't see us for the successful businessmen, engineers, doctors, lawyers, homemakers, family people that we are. They see the young woman who stayed out past curfew. The young man who was too lazy to clean the garage. The young people who never did their homework on time. That's the image that people have of us. Jesus was just a regular guy, but He was a regular guy unlike any guy. He was without sin. And He made it His pattern, Luke tells us, to be in church. This is instructive for us instructive especially for our young people there there is a reason to be with God's people and it's not just because mom and dad drag you it's not just because if you don't go there will be punishment to follow no, it is because this is where you begin to build your own relationship with God if it is a truism that your parents' belief in Jesus cannot save you then how can your parents going to church introduce you to Jesus? You need to meet with Him yourself. And so Jesus, Luke tells us, as was His custom, was found regularly in the synagogue, in that time's church. And the synagogue had developed out of Israel's captivity in Babylon. You see, what had happened was, Israel's worship was centered around the temple, but in exile, there was no temple. There was no place to sacrifice, no place to worship. They had to develop another way to gather together, to read the scriptures, and to pray for repentance and restoration. And the synagogue then sprung up. Any town that had at least ten men could have a synagogue. And its elements were very familiar to us. There would be singing. There would be a call to worship, which would be the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then there would be a series of 18 benedictions or prayers that would be recited by the people corporately. Not unlike our affirmation of faith, a corporate confession of sin. And then the Scripture would be opened, or rather in those days, unrolled. And it would be read. And then it would be expounded upon. One main difference that we see in the text is, is that everyone stood for the reading of the Scripture, including the reader, and then after it was read, the preacher sat down to teach. So when Jesus sits, it is not Him being cheeky. It is not Him being impertinent. It is the ordinary course of synagogue worship. And so what happens is, this day, the scroll is unrolled. And Isaiah 61 is found. Now, Luke wants us to see these details. This incident occurs both in the Gospels of Matthew and of Mark, but in much less detail. Only Luke tells us the text that was read. Only Luke describes in vivid detail the reaction of the people. Only Luke gives us a portion of the sermon that Jesus gave. This is incredibly important to understanding the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus intentionally picks this text beforehand. Do not think that it was simply the text of the day. It would have been ordinary for the preacher to go to the leader of the synagogue and to say, this is my text. I'm going to speak from Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. Please mark the scroll there. And then the leader of the synagogue would bring him the text and he would read it. And it is clearly a messianic passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to set the captives free, to recover the sight of the blind, and to put at liberty the oppressed. Listen to the focus of this text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says. He has anointed me. He has sent me. Emphasizing those pronouns. Deliverance from captivity is pronounced. Then, a thunderclap comes. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Now, more was said than that because you'll note that our text says that He began to say to them. Jesus didn't just say one sentence and leave it at that. He then began to expound upon this messianic text to talk about what it meant to be poor, what it meant to be oppressed, how the Spirit had anointed Him, the mission that He was upon. The import of the text and the sermon was that Jesus was declaring He was the Messiah. You've been waiting for me, Jesus said. God has answered your prayers. But did they want God's answer? Do we want God's answer? Or often are we tempted to sit in church, row upon row, and want God to give us our answer. To do for us what we desire. What we think will be best. What we think we deserve. This was an audacious claim by Jesus. Right in the midst of His hometown, people who had watched Him grow up from youngest days and He said, I am the Messiah. It's followed by a bold and audacious response. There is an interesting initial reaction from the churched crowd. All spoke well of him. They marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. They marveled at the words of grace, Luke says. They turned to one another and said, Oh, he's such a nice young man, isn't he? Oh, he's so well read. He has such nice things to say. Oh, he's studied the scriptures. And he's got such a presence about him. He doesn't stumble over his words. Oh, I like the way he speaks. We'll have to hear him again. It's obvious that he knows his Bible. He's studied it well. And almost before they know it, the crowd is impressed. impressed with his words. Impressed with his mannerisms. But wait. We can't even get out of verse 22 and a change begins to occur. There is a cynicism that begins then to take root. As they're talking about how well he's speaking. Can you imagine? Did you think he could speak that well? Then someone says, I know, isn't he just a carpenter's son? It's not like he's a... A, rhetorist, a, a speaker of rhetoric. It's not like he's a politician. He doesn't have a, a silver tongue. And someone else would say, yeah, he is just a carpenter's son, isn't he? As a matter of fact, isn't he Joseph and Mary's boy? Now, wait a minute. What's all his business about being the Messiah? What's all this business about I'm the one you're waiting for? We saw him when he was six. Who does he think he is? And you see, immediately, impression begins to yield to cynicism. Because you see, they admired what Jesus said, but they were not moved by what he said. They were not changed. They were not cut to the heart. They were not motivated to change their lives, to change the way that they think. And they said to themselves, you can almost imagine the wheels turning. Well, listen here. If we're going to actually change the way we live, we better be sure about this. Jesus, work up a miracle. Let let us be sure here. You know, the Bible's all well and good. but, But do something fancy. Blow open a wall. Rip open the ground. Wither a tree. Come on, make water spring out of the ground. Do something exciting that will show us that what you really said is true. And then if it is, then we'll give it every consideration. You see, being impressed, and here is the danger, beloved, even being impressed with the Bible does not equal belief. Knowing what the Bible says, nodding assent to its principles, does not change your heart. Others may look at you and think it has changed your heart. But you and God know the difference. You see, being impressed is not enough. Jesus sees their hearts. He knows they want the spectacular and He knows He is not it. He's a regular guy, remember? He's young Jesus back in town. And He doesn't want them to believe simply because of the spectacular. Doesn't this describe to a T not Nazareth, but the American church? God has seen fit to bless us with growth. As people come into our neighborhood and as they hear the Word of God preached and taught and as they see the people of God gather together in community. But you know what? We could set up five services next week if I just healed one of you of blindness or deafness or a broken back. That's what people want today. They want the spectacular yeah, 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 you teach the Bible, but can you do something really neat? You see, that is what we long for. It's not because we're Americans. It's because we're people. Jews in Nazareth, were the same way. You need to know this. Ministers are the same way. We go off to Presbytery, we go off to General Assembly, and we want to hear about people we know who have done something spectacular. We don't want to hear about just the everyday plotting. And then when we find that we are not spectacular, we think God is not in our midst. This happens in our homes too, doesn't it? We look longingly at other people and we say, if only my kids could be like that. Oh, If only my wife treated me like that. If only my husband loved me like that. And we lose sight of what God does in the everyday. In the love that is found in cooking. In cleaning. In going to work to bring home money. In helping. and serving. You see, we think somehow we're better than that. But when we have that attitude, we're sitting in the synagogue in Nazareth. With our church clothes. Judging God. Jesus sees their hearts. He sees that they want to be famous. They want to be like Capernaum. Jesus, do some miracles here. Then everybody will say, did you hear what happened in Nazareth? Did you see what happened in the synagogue at Nazareth? Do you know who the leader of the synagogue at Nazareth is? Do you know who the soloist at the synagogue at Nazareth is? Come on, Jesus, just give us a little something, and then we'll be famous. And again, that temptation comes to us too, doesn't it? Close your eyes and wonder whether at times in the recesses of your heart you want children to come to VBS. You want Sunday school attendance to come up. You want people to know about our church so that they think better of you, not God. It's a temptation that comes to us and Satan knows it. He attacks And so Jesus says, no, that's not what I will do. And He begins to preach and give them stories. He tells them the story of the widow and the story of Naaman. And you can almost imagine the crowd as it goes from exuberance and the buzz in the air about Jesus' teaching to now cynicism. Who does this guy think he is? And then he begins telling a story. He tells a very uncomfortable story. It's a story of the widow. And we sit and we think, oh, isn't it this is a good story? Elijah saves a widow. That's not how they would have heard it. He tells them a story about a famine that came as a judgment on Israel for unbelief. And then he says, you know, there were plenty of widows who were hungry. And God sent Elijah to one in Zarephath. Now, Zarephath may not ring any bells for you. So I will rename it for you. Zarephath is Jezebelville. It's in Jezebel's home country. It's actually her father's hometown. What? Jesus, why are you bringing up this story? Why do you want, you want us to hear a story about a Gentile dog from Jezebel's town? Yes, I do, says Jesus. She was singled out by God. She was the one to whom Elijah came. And do you know why? Know why, Jesus? Because when Elijah said to her, I want the last of your food, and then I will bless you, she didn't say, show me you're a prophet, Elijah. Get something going. She said, okay, I believe. (gasps) Now they're getting angry. Now you're saying a Gentile dog's better than we are, Jesus, aren't you? Well, I'm just telling you the scriptures. You can draw your own correct conclusions from them. You see, she believes and doesn't demand any evidence. How could she do this? How is she different from those sitting in the synagogue at Nazareth? How is she different than you and me? She is different from us in the sense That she knew she had no resources. She knew she had nowhere to lean. She knew she had nowhere to fall back on. Like those in Nazareth did. They thought they didn't have to trust God. They'd done pretty well for themselves. They'd set themselves up pretty well. Materially, spiritually, they had a well-run synagogue. But this woman had nothing. You could see them grumbling and getting angry. Jesus then goes to the next story. Well, let me tell you about someone else. Oh yeah, get away from these Gentile women. Let me tell you about Naaman the Syrian. What? Now you're talking about a pagan general that attacked us! Well yes, let me tell you about him. He's better than you too. Because you see, he came and he was told to do something ridiculous. He came And he was dirty with leprosy and he wanted to be clean. And Elisha looked at him and he said, why don't you go wait around in that dirty mud puddle for seven times? And he was furious. He said, we've got better rivers than that. Why would I do something like that? Until someone said to him, sir, you remember we went on this entire errand because a little girl in your house told us to? Maybe you should just believe and do. And a marvelous, miraculous thing happened. Naaman the Syrian, the general of generals, the pagan leader said, I believe. And he didn't wait for a sign or a wonder. He was cleansed. Jesus hits the mark with them and then they get furious beyond anything you can imagine. They don't even let the service finish. Imagine that in our context. He's still preaching and they get so angry, they rise up from their seats, they elbow the piano player out of the way, they knock over the pulpit and they grab him and they say, off to the cliff. That's how angry they are. That's how much Jesus has challenged their impression of who they are and what they deserve. You see, what they're doing is they're protecting themselves from Jesus. The word hits a bit too close to home. Why is this? It's because of the good news that Jesus brought in His sermon. He brought from the text and He brings to you today. It is audacious. It is scandalous. It is something we don't expect and think we deserve better than. You see, the good news is we are not as good as we think we are. The good news is for us. Are you poor? I don't mean are you in debt, although you may be. I mean, are you tired? Are you poor in spirit? Are you able to see your need? Then Jesus is here for you. He has been anointed to bring you good news. To see that you are without hope except for the grace that comes in Christ Jesus. Are you captive? Jesus has come to set the captives free. And these are not just any old prisoners. The word here for captives actually means those who are caught By the spear. Those who are prisoners of war in the war against the devil. Are you in bondage today? Bondage to sin. Bondage to your pride. Bondage to your lust. Bondage to yourself. Then Jesus is here to set you free. But you must be particular about it. We don't talk about the prison system. We don't talk about thoughts of captivity. We say cell block four. Cell 4B. If you're in captivity to sin today, you must name it for yourself. You must get specific with your sin. You must name it, denounce it, and claim the blood of Christ for it. I'm harsh with people. No, you're not. You screamed at your neighbor. Repent of it. I'm not as loving to my wife as I should be. No, you're not. You forgot her birthday and were thoughtless. Repent of it. Get specific with your sin. And Jesus will specifically cover it. Jesus is here to give sight to the blind. You see... We walk around the world not seeing the way it should be and not seeing our need. And Jesus opens our eyes. You know the famous line from the famous hymn, Once I was blind, but what? Now I see. I see because Jesus has opened my eyes. Jesus is here to bring liberty to the oppressed. Those who are broken in pieces, the word means. Those who are shattered. Those who are beat down. Do you feel beat down by life? Do you feel oppressed by your job or by others or by your sin or by expectations? Jesus is here to set you free and give you real purpose of life. That's where true freedom is found. You see, Jesus... It's the one who has brought redemption. We are not as good as we think we are. That's good news. Because it tells us that we need a Savior. We can't muddle through life on our own. And the good news, the audacious good news that comes from Jesus is that the grace that Jesus brings is amazing. You see this at the end of this passage that Jesus reads... He is here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God's grace has come, beloved. It's not something we wait for. It's not something you need to put on the shelf. It's not something you need to put a reminder in your phone. Get God's grace when I turn 18. Get God's grace when I retire. No. God's grace is here now. And It's interesting. Jesus actually leaves out a part of this verse. And I think He does it for us to tell us how amazing His grace is. You see, the original verse in Isaiah 61, 2 says, He is here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus said, today is the day of grace. It's not the day of vengeance. That day is coming, but it's not today. You don't need to worry about vengeance today. You need to worry about grace. You need to meet grace. You need to be prepared for that day of vengeance to be found washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's no need to play games. There was a whole circus maximus going on in the synagogue at Nazareth. There were those who were playing games of keeping up appearances, making sure that people saw them and thought they were better than they were. There were those who were in denial about who they were. Well, of course I'm better than I am. And then there was the well-known tactic, the game of blame-shifting. Well, if so-and-so hadn't been so mean and thoughtless to me years ago, maybe I would have turned out better. Maybe I would be nicer to people if people didn't mistreat me. No. This isn't the time for games no matter how much you have been hurt, no matter how difficult your life has been, no matter how hopeless it is, Jesus is there to set you free, to declare the day of the Lord, the day of Jubilee. You see, Jesus is the answer. Not just for those out there who are obviously lost. No, for churchgoers like you and like me. He actually deals with... With sin. You don't have to cover it over anymore. You don't have to pretend it isn't there. You don't have to shift the blame on someone else. He deals with it. Once and for all. Scripture tells us. And all you need to do. Is believe. All you need to do. Is trust him at his word. This is the One who has come. He has words of grace in His mouth, power in His arms, and love in His heart for His people. Will you believe Him today? Will you take the grace that comes from His lips and from His life? He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.